today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. All right, Merry Christmas Eve, everyone. Uh, I want to welcome you to Exilic, especially uh, if it's your first time joining us today. We're really grateful that you could uh, be here with us to worship. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you are joining us for the first time, we've been doing a series on Genesis uh, the past few months, which we are wrapping up today. But as we, as we take a look at this story, uh, it is a disturbing story, isn't it? Uh, it's a story about God asking or commanding even a father to sacrifice his own son. Um, not something that you would expect a very loving God to do. I mean, this is the kind of evil um, that is comparable to the kind of evil that you would see in something like the Holocaust. And I think what's even more troubling uh, is the fact that Abraham and Sarah, it's not like they're in their 20s and they could just have more children. I mean, they are over 100 years old at this point when God is asking Abraham to sacrifice his own son, his one and only son. So for a loving God to ask Abraham to do something like this seems cruel, reprehensible, and pure evil. The atheist scientist Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion, writes this about Genesis 22. This disgraceful story is an example simultaneously of child abuse, bullying in two asymmetrical power relationships, and the first recorded use of the Nuremberg defense. I was only obeying orders. In the 18th and 19th century, Immanuel Kant and Soren Kierkegaard argued that Abraham should have reasoned with God's unreasonable request because no immoral command would have come from a moral God. So the question is, who is right? Is it Dawkins? Is it Kant? Is it Kierkegaard? And I think with respect uh, out of all of these great thinkers, I don't think any of them got it fully right. I think the key to sort of unlocking this disturbing story is to interpret the seemingly disturbing story 
through the lens of the Christmas story. And it is only when we interpret the seemingly disturbing story through the lens of the Christmas story, what we find is that this is not a disturbing story at all, but this is the greatest love story humanity has ever seen, witnessed, and experienced. But that is the key. Because this story, what this story is ultimately pointing to is a father who really did lose his son to a sacrifice. And that person is Jesus. And that's why we're here today. Jesus is the greatest gift that God could have ever given to us. But my question for every one of us today is not only to think about this great gift that God has given to us in the person and work of Jesus, but what I want to do for every one of us today is this. I want to turn the tables around, or as Michael Scott would say, table to turn. I want to turn the tables around and ask you this question. We know what God has given to us for Christmas, but the question I want to ask you today is this. If you could get God something for Christmas what would you get him? Now, this is a hard question to answer because we kind of all viscerally know what this is like. You know how hard it is to shop for someone who already has everything? We all have people like that in our life. It's like, what do we get them when they already have everything, let alone like the creator of heaven and earth? What in the world could we possibly get God as a gift for Christmas? Well, there is one thing that you can give for God on, on this Christmas, uh, in this Christmas season. And I think Mariah Carey summarizes very well, I, who I quoted last week, who makes a million dollars off of us on royalties every single year for her song, All I Want for Christmas is You. And all God wants for Christmas is you. And if that hasn't sunk deeply, what I just said, if, if, if it hasn't sunk deeply into your heart, because it sounds so cliche and trite, let me phrase it another way. What God wants for Christmas, the greatest gift that you can give to him, is for you to make him number one in your life. Not number two, not number three, but for him to be second to no one in your life, including your cute baby child. In fact, the Bible go, would go as far as to say that our love for God has to be so strong that in comparison to that love for God, all other loves, even your love for your mom and dad, yes, even your love for your baby, in comparison to your love to God, it almost has to seem like hate. That is the kind of intensity with which we are called to love God, that we would have no other gods before him, even if they are cute and cuddly. And until God becomes number one in your life, what all of us will experience are tests. Okay, take a look with me at verse one and two. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Now, I was a student for over 40 years of my life, and the irony about that is I, am, I don't have a strong affection for tests. 
Okay, but one of the things that you will experience as a student are tests, because tests have a way of revealing who you are. They have a way of revealing the truth about who you are. This is why we take COVID tests, we take lab tests, we take driving tests, we take the LSATs, we test out restaurants, we test out relationships, because tests have a way of revealing who we are, they have a way of revealing uh, the truth. And if that's the case, what that also means is that God will also test every single one of us. Not so that he could know what we're really like, but so that you could know what you're really like. And I think the Myers-Briggs, Enneagram, Strength Finders, those are helpful tools to kind of help us know who we are However, you will not know who you really, really are until you are tested. Your life in many ways is like a bottle of toothpaste. You don't know what's inside that toothpaste until it is squeezed. And you know what tests do? Tests squeeze us. And it is only when we are squeezed that we truly discover what's deeply inside of us whether that is anger, impatience, joy, resiliency, bitterness, depression. Only when we are tested do we discover what's really inside of us. In Proverbs 17, the writer says this, the crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. And I can give you 50 more verses that talk about how God tests us, how God tested the Israelites in the wilderness. So tests have a way of revealing what's inside of us. But as the author, rapper, and excellent expositor Jackie Hill Perry would say, tests not only reveal what's inside of you, but they also refine you as well. Or as Augustine would say, tests not only prove who you are, but they improve who you are, which is why Job, who was very much tested in his life, in chapter 23.10 writes this, when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Tests not only reveal what's inside of you, but they refine you as well. James takes it one step further and says this. In James chapter 1, consider it pure joy. Not tainted joy, but pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Blessed, not cursed, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life. If you never experienced any kind of tests in life, your life would be easier for sure. But that doesn't mean that your life would be better, which is why Adam and Eve were tested. Abraham and Sarah were tested. Noah was tested. Job was tested. And yes, even Jesus himself was tested in his life. And if all of these figures were tested, what makes us think that God would withhold tests for us in the life that we live? So what I want you to think about is this. As we wrap up 2023... Really quickly, reflect back on this past year and think, how has God been testing you 
as a roommate, as a leader, as a spouse, a friend, a parent, a worker? In what ways has God been testing you and stretching you in this season uh, of life that we're in? In many ways, Abraham's biography is a biography of failure after failure, but the one thing that I do admire about Abraham is that every time he failed, he failed forward. And what does it mean to fail forward? It means that you no longer see failure as your greatest enemy, but you see failure as your greatest teacher. That you no longer see failure as a stepping stone to shame where you just want to disappear off the face of the earth because of what you've done but you see failure as a stepping stone to actual success, which is why God tests Abraham, but he continually fails forward until the point where he faces this ultimate test, which he passes. In verse two and four, it says, then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Now, if it wasn't bad enough that God wanted Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son, he also wanted him to sacrifice him on Mount Moriah, which was a three-day, 50-mile journey. Now, if I was over 100 years old and there were no Ubers, the question that I would ask is, why does God want me to sacrifice my son all the way on Mount Moriah? Why can't, why can't it just be done right here? Why, why make this extra trek all the way to Mount Moriah? And I want, you to, I want you to just hold that geographic location in your minds for a second. Just hold that thought, because before I want this story to be theological, I want this story to be personal. Abraham is taking his son on a three-day journey, the Green Mile, to his own son's execution. Not only was this journey physically painful, but you could Im imagine the mental anguish that Abraham must have been experiencing, knowing what he would have to do. Yet, unlike Lot's wife, who turned around, Abraham never turned around. This three-day trek is what Eugene Peterson would refer to as, as a long obedience in the same direction. Not a long obedience in the wrong direction, but a long obedience in the same right direction. And if this is how Abraham obeyed God, there is much that we can learn from him as well. A long obedience in the same direction. If you are not a Christian here today, we're glad that you could join us. And I think one of the things that we all know is that life is a journey, is it not? But the question that I would ask you is where are you going on this journey? What is your destination? What is the point of life? Where in the world are you going right now? And if you are a Christian, the question that I wanna ask you is how has your walk with Jesus been? Is it a long obedience in the same direction or are you zigzagging all over the place? Here's the good news. Abraham's journey with God wasn't linear, but it was all over the place. Take a look at this chart. In many ways, we think that success looks like the picture on the left, but the reality is this, this picture on the right, which is all over the place, 
is what our lives actually look like. But with every step of Abraham's journey and life, God was preparing him for this ultimate test. And what was that test? That test was this. God was basically saying to Abraham, I am willing to give up my son for you. But are you willing to give up your child for me? I am willing to give up everything for you. But are you willing to give up your everything for me? Am I number one in your life? Or am I number two, three, or four in your life? And so if you are a parent here today, can I ask you a hard question? Do your children come first? Or does God come first in your life? The Bible is radical again in saying, that our love for God has to be so supreme that all other loves, yes, even our love for our kids, has to almost look like hatred in comparison to our love for God. But the question is, do you love your children even more than God? And if you're not a parent, what other things, what other loves do you have in your life? What other gods, whether it's freedom, time, money, relationships, comfort, stability, travel, success. A.W. Tozer in his book, Pursuit of God, writes this, Father, I want to know thee, but my coward heart fears to give up its toys. I cannot part with them without inward bleeding, and I do not try to hide from thee the terror of the parting. I come trembling, but do come. Please root from my heart all those things which I have cherished so long and which I have become a very part of my living self, so that thou mayest dwell there without a rival. You see, what this story is ultimately about, this test, is not so much that God wanted Isaac's life, so much as he wanted Abraham's heart. And we know that Abraham has faith and trusts in God because in verse five, he says, he arrives at the foot of the mountain and he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham doesn't say I will come back to you, but he says we will come back to you. Abraham fully believed in his heart of hearts that Isaac would come back with him. And this is crazy because Abraham had never heard of Lazarus. Abraham had never heard of Jesus and Easter. He had never witnessed a resurrection before from the dead. He had never experienced or seen a bodily uh, death come back to life. And yet he fully believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead. And we know this because of the commentary in Hebrews 11 where it says, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham, foolishly? No. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. 
Abraham believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead because he fully trusted in God's promise that he made to him, that it was through Isaac that all, all the nations would, would come out of. And if Isaac were to die, Abraham reasoned that God would be a liar. But the second reason why Abraham trusted in God, that God could raise Isaac from the dead, is because Abraham had already witnessed a bodily resurrection before. And it was his own body and his wife's body, Sarah. In Romans, 5, uh, Romans 4, Paul says, without weakening in his faith, that is Abraham, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Do you know what Paul is saying here? He's basically saying that Abraham and Sarah, they're as old as dirt. Their bodies are lifeless. Their bodies are about to die because they're both respectively 90 and 100 years old at this point. In order for life to come out of this lifeless body, they would have to experience a fountain of youth or a resurrection for it to produce life. And therefore, Abraham reasoned, if God could resurrect my old body, if he could resurrect my wife's old body, he reasoned that he could also resurrect Isaac's body as well. This wasn't a blind faith. This was a 2020 rational kind of faith. And I see this kind of rational, reasonable faith every week in our community. When I, when I meet with people that have lost their parents and yet are still faithful and trusting God's goodness, when I meet with people in our own community who have lost their jobs for over one year, yet they still trust in the providence and goodness of God, when I meet with people who feel lost in life, like what the heck am I doing in life, yet they still reasonably and rationally trust and the goodness and faithfulness of God. But you know what is irrational and unreasonable? What's unreasonable is when we take a look at God's proven track record in our lives and his goodness and faithfulness to us. When we consider all of his goodness to us and then we still doubt him in our life today, that's unreasonable. That's irrational when God has proven himself over and over again. And I don't know what tests you are experiencing in this season, but are you reasonably, rationally willing to trust God with your life, even during this season of testing? Abraham was, which is why in verse six, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife as the two of them went on together. Place this mental picture in your head. A father placing wood on his son's back as his son climbs Mount Moriah. And then in verse 7 through 10, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, uh, Father Abraham, Father, yes, my son Abraham replied, the fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. 
Now, if we were to only fixate on Abraham's faith, that would be a mistake because the person with greater faith in this story is perhaps Isaac. A lot of scholars believe that up to this point, Isaac is probably close to 20 years old. Now, if you put a 20-year-old young man and a 120-year-old old man in a UFC octagon, who's going to win that fight? I'm taking the 20-year-old 10 times out of 10. If, Abraham, if Isaac wanted to wrestle the knife away from his father, he could have. At the very least, if Isaac wanted to run away from his crazy father, he could have. But what do we see here? There is no mention of struggle at all. The son voluntarily, willingly allowed his father to bind him on a piece of wood to be sacrificed, which means that as much faith as Abraham had, Isaac had just as much faith. But right before Abraham is about to slay his son, God tells him to stop it. In verse 13 to 14, Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Now what story does this sound like? I mentioned earlier before, the only way, the key to unlocking this disturbing story, the only way to understand it is to interpret it through the lens of the Christmas story. Because on Christmas Day, a child from Abraham, from Isaac, would come. Another miraculous child, not born of an elderly woman, but born of a virgin, who would also one day climb Mount Moriah. He would also have wood in the form of a cross placed on his back. But whereas Isaac had a substitute in his place, Jesus himself would be our substitute for our sins and our divided heart. And unlike Isaac who was spared, Jesus was a son, the child who was not spared on our behalf. And just as Abraham and Sarah and Isaac experienced a kind of bodily resurrection, Jesus would as well, because he is the one that passed the ultimate test by living a perfect life and dying a perfect death. And in John 8, 56, John writes, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. How did Abraham see Jesus when Jesus was born centuries after him? He saw the savior of the world being sacrificed through a picture of his son Isaac being sacrificed and rising from the dead. And so this Christmas, the one thing that I want us to be reminded of is that God has given you his greatest gift, his everything, his one and only son. But the question that I also want to ask you is if God has given you his everything, what are you willing to give God for Christmas? What can you practically do to make him number one in your life again? Maybe if you're a parent, you can have a conversation with your spouse and say, babe, I know we have a cute little baby, but we need to point this baby to Jesus 
So how about in the new year, we make a commitment simply to come to church every Sunday, not once a month, not once a quarter, but every Sunday because we want to point our baby to Jesus and we also want our baby to know that God is number one in our life, not even our own child. Maybe if, if you're not a parent, maybe the greatest gift that you can give to God is a new attitude and a new heart. I don't know what 2024 will hold for all of us, but I do know this, you will be tested. But how about this up and coming year when we are squeezed instead of impatience, bitterness, anger oozing out of us, maybe the greatest gift that we can give to God and to others is a new heart, a new posture, a new attitude to consider it, consider it even pure joy when we are tested this up and coming year. God didn't ask Abraham to make Isaac just any kind of offering, but he specifically asked Abraham to be a burnt offering. In other kinds of offerings, you didn't have to sacrifice the whole animal. You could spare and you could divide parts of the animals and the priest would eat it. But in a burnt offering, that whole life, that whole body was consumed for God. And he tells Abraham that Isaac has to be a burnt offering. And you know what? Your life has to be a burnt offering. You cannot have a divided heart and just give portions of your life to God because he wants your whole life, not just segments of your life. Just as he has given his everything, the greatest gift that you can give to God this season is to give him your everything. Let me just close with this quote from Charles Spurgeon when he writes this. Our Heavenly Father sends us frequent troubles to test our faith. If our faith is worth anything, it will stand the test. The imitation gem dreads being touched by the diamond, but the true jewel fears no test. It is a poor faith that can only trust God when friends are true, the body is healthy, and business is profitable. But it is true faith that rests in the Lord's faithfulness when friends are gone, the body is ailing, spirits are depressed, and the light of our Father's face is hidden. A faith that can say in the deepest trouble, though he slay me, I will hope in him is heaven-born faith. And that is my prayer for myself. And that's my prayer for all of us. As we wrap up this year and as we begin another year, may we be a people that fail forward. Let's pray together. Lord, in many ways, Genesis chapter 22 is a chapter that we should approach with trembling hands because of what it asks of us. Not just one hour a week, but it asks everything of us, everything. And that can be a terrifying thing because there are so many toys that we hold so tightly, so many gods. But help us to realize that the moment we open our hands and surrender to you,
that all things, our kids, our family members, our life, are in the palm of gentle and secure hands. So help us to let go of these things and to place our confidence and trust in you just as Abraham did with his son and just as you did with your one and only son for us. If you have given us your everything, may we not withhold anything from you. And that is the greatest gift that we can give to you. May we not withhold it. In your name I pray, amen.